You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it's great to see you. First Peter is where we are, so you want to grab your Bible and you're going to need to be looking at that. First Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 22. Um, we are in the, the same section of Scripture that we were in last week. And so we are kind of um, doing part two of that little section of scripture, um, hitting the second major theme of that section. And so last week, first theme and kind of the first command in, in those seven verses is this idea to love one another. And uh, now we're going to see this command to crave or to love, long for the word of God. And so that, that's kind of where we're going is this theme of trying to expose what the word of God is and hopefully allowing the spirit to stir up in you in you, in your family, in your kids, in in your wife, your husband, a deep love for and craving of and want of the word. So so that's what I'm praying for you today. So 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 22, goes like this. Having purified your soul by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, and here's command number one, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That was last week. Verse 23. Uh, 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Theme two. For all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Chapter two, verse one. So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, here's command number two long for, crave, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So, so the big theme is the Bible, the Word of God. So let's start out with some general facts about the Bible, just to give you some things to throw in the junk drawer when you think of what the Bible is. First of all, we would say this, the Bible is the Word of God. So it is God's words to us. That's an amazing thing to, to think about. I don't just gloss over that as if that's not a big deal. I love what the Puritans used to say about it, specifically Thomas Watson. He says, when you read a line in the Bible, you need to read it as if God is speaking to you. Because in fact, he is speaking to you through that line, right? Don't gloss over that. That is a huge reality that God has written down in a book, words for us from him. Okay, so, so it's God's word. It's made up of 66 books, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament. I think it might be helpful to think about the Bible um, like a library of books. So you've got a lot of books in the library all forming this one big volume that we call the Bible. 75% of the Bible is made up of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is all about Jesus. It points to and and predicts the coming of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. The New Testament is roughly 25% of the Bible, and it presents that Jesus, his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And the New and Old Testaments are, are linked. They go hand in hand. The New Testament quotes directly the Old Testament like 300 times and alludes to it over 4,000 times. So you've got a, a tight link between the two. And I think this could be helpful for us just to make sure we don't get kind of clouded into some error on this one. But um, verses and chapters, um, you've got roughly 1,189 chapters in the Bible. Those were added in the 1,200s. You've got over 31,000 verses in the Bible. Those were added in the 1,500s. And they aren't inspired. 
In other words, God didn't put verse 31 out beside something in the Bible. Um, He didn't put a chapter out beside something. Those were written in for your benefit to help you be able to organize and find your way through the scriptures. And so, but they're not inspired. Like when you look at the text that we're in this morning, I think it would have been most helpful to probably end chapter one at the end of chapter two, verse three, and kind of loop that all together. But they didn't ask me, so we're all good there. And so, uh, but it's helpful for you to be able to find your way through, through the scriptures. Um, Let's see here. It it was written over a period of about 1,500 years, roughly 1,400 BC to 100 AD in three different languages and by roughly 40 human authors and been translated into more languages than any other book ever in the history of the world. And it's the best-selling book of any book in the history of the world. Now, this is the point where I think most Christians would hear that and they would say, yes, that's, that's my Bible right there. And so, but here's the angst of this morning. My, my problem and, and really the angst and, and the thing that I worry about for us and for a lot of Christians is that although we admire the Bible, we are not people who devour it. And so there, I know that there's a great appreciation amongst most Christians for the book, for the Bible, but I, I don't think that there is a, a craving and a longing and a wanting and a pursuing God in it. That maybe you could say it this way, that I think there is a general neglect of this book that we would all say we love so much. Um, if we were just to maybe take the last week of your life and look at how the Bible intersected with your last week, um, I think that we would probably conclude that the people of God are like on a famine diet of the word of God, that, that we are malnourished with the word of God. There's a general neglect of it. So this is my angst this morning, is I'm praying that God would stir us out of the neglect of the word, that he would stir up the people of God with a great love for and a longing for and a craving for and a desire for his words. Amen? Okay, so I want to give you seven characteristics out of this passage, seven characteristics of the Bible that that 1 Peter um, describes in, in these seven verses. And here's the first one, is that it's living. That the Bible is living. Okay, look at it in verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the, and here's the word, the living and abiding word of God. Now, Hebrews says something very similar to this, this idea of it being a living word. Here's the, the words of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 and 13. He says it this way, for the word of God is living. And I think this next word is going to help describe what living means. So he says it's living and active. So when you think of what it means for the Bible to be living, it means that it's an active book. That when you open up the Bible and you start reading it, you can be fully expectant that God is going to meet you there. That he's going to actually do something with your reading it. This is where um, Psalms 19, as it's um, detailing what the word does, its active nature in us, says that it does things like make wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It restores the soul. So that's the, the, the active, um, kind of the active working of the word of God for you, that it's a living thing, that it does things. It affects things. That when you open it up, it, 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 it's gonna intersect with your life. It's gonna be relevant for you. It's gonna change some things about you. So, so it's living and it's active. He goes on to say this, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and of marrow. So maybe you could think of the, the living kind of component of the word of God functioning like a sword where it cuts through the calluses of your heart all the way to the core of what you think about God, what you think about yourself, what you think about life. 
And, and then he's going to throw in this last one. He says, and it, it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That the word also functions like a mirror. Part of the living nature of the word is it's like holding a mirror out in front of you that shows you where sin and unbelief lie in you. That it's got this exposing nature to it. That you can't read the Bible if you're really reading it. Like you're, you're pouring over it. When you're reading the Bible, it is also reading you. That you can't help but be, but be exposed. You can't help but be convicted of sin. You can't help but being exposed that this is what we are to be, but this is what we are now. You can't help but do that as you read the Bible. It, it, this is the function of it being living. It, it functions like a sword. It functions like this mirror. It, it's an active thing that actually produces some things in you. So first off, he says that it's living. Characteristic number one. Here, here's number two. Look at verse 23 and 20, through 25 again here. He says this, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living, and here's another word, abiding word of God. Verse 24, for all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Um, Characteristic number two, the word of God is enduring. He uses words like imperishable, abiding, remains forever to describe the word of God, to, to kind of give you the enduring nature of the word of God. And I love what he does. He sets it up with this picture of grass. And he's saying that that everything else in the world is like grass. Man is like grass. Nations are like grass. Cultures are like grass. Everything's like grass that, that sprouts up one day, blooms brightly one day, and is dead the next. Everything is like that compared to the word of God. That the word of God's got this enduring quality to it. So you can be confident that nations are going to crumble, but the l- word of the Lord will remain. You can be confident that you're going to die, but the, but the word remains, right? It's got this enduring quality. Um, writing to specifically Peter into his context, he, he is writing into a people who are suffering under Roman oppression. And I, I think part of the application of this is it's encouragement. That, that the people of God, you can be encouraged, you that are living under Roman oppression, that there will be a day that Rome is buried in ruins, but the word of the Lord will remain. That everyone who mocks and maligns the word will one day die, but the word of God will still be alive. It'll still be living. Okay? This is an encouragement that he's giving. And when you think about the history of the Bible, I, I think it's a fascinating history that there's never been a book that has been more loved and more hated at the same time. Never been a book like that. And so you, you, the Bible, if you've got a Bible in your hand, that has come to you amongst great opposition at great cost to many people. And listen to uh, the opposition that it, it faced early on in the first several centuries after Jesus. Um, this is one pastor commenting on some of the things they would try to do to get Christians to put down the Bible. He says this, body racks, tongue pinchers, I don't know what that is, but I do not like the sound of it, right? I'm saying uncle, tapping out really quick if they pull out the tongue pincher. Thumb screws, again, never seen one. I don't think I want to though. Thumb screws, whipping trees have been used to encourage Christians to put down their Bible. Some have been burned, others boiled, many beheaded, and innumerable drawn and quartered because they wouldn't put down the Bible. By AD 300, an official decree by Rome outlawed any sort of possession of the Bible. Any Christian caught with one would be executed. And if you just keep going through church history, the fact that you have a Bible in the English language, if you're holding one this morning, it's in English probably, the fact that you have that came at great cost to many people. 
Great cost. John Wycliffe, um, he was one of the first ones that tried to get the Bible into common everyday English language where people, English speaking people could read it. He translated it from the Latin Vulgate. And so he's got a Latin Vulgate, translates it into English. He's later for that um, by the church declared as a heretic. They dig up his body, burn his bones and spread the ashes over a river. Isn't that something? Um, later on, William Tyndale, he was the first one to go back to the original languages to try to get the Bible into the English language. Um, for, for, again, for common people to be able to read it, he was strangled and burned alive all at the same time. His associate, John Rogers, picks up his work, finishes it, and he's burned at the stake. I mean, it, it is great cost, the fact that the Bible is, is to you, in, in, under great opposition do you have it. It's this enduring quality. Um, Voltaire, an old um, French philosopher in the 1700s, um, he made the comment that within 100 years that the Bible would be basically cease to exist. People would not be reading it. It would just kind of quietly go away. And what's ironic is just a few years after his death, a Bible society purchases his home, uses his printing presses to send Bibles around the world. Isn't that amazing? That this is the enduring quality of the world. Peter, the word. Peter is saying that, that everything else is going to fade. Everything else. Your beauty is going to fade. Nations are going to fade. Emperors are going to die. All of that is going to go away, but the word of the Lord will remain. Amen? It's this enduring quality to it. But he's got more here. Number three. Third characteristic. Verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through what? Through the living and abiding word of God, that the word of God is life-giving. That if you're a Christian, you're a Christian because the spirit of God planted the word of God in you. That's why you're a Christian. That, That God uses his words to impart life to his people. Probably the most consistent thing that I pray for, for you on a Sunday morning as we gather and you get to listen to preaching and you get to sing. We, we got, all get to do that corporately. Probably the primary thing that I pray for you is that God would breathe life into his words in this room on a Sunday morning and through those words, he would breathe great life into you. Many of us here right now, that if you were just to kind of rank your desire for God right now, it would be on the low end of the scale, maybe even off the scale for you. And here's part of what this means, that, that you're made new, that you, your new life is given to you through the word. Part of what this means for a Christian too, is that one of God's primary ways of breathing life into you is by you living in his word. So, so if you lack spiritual vitality today, that here's one of God's primary means to impart it to you. You open up the Bible and you read it. If you lack a, a, just a desire for God and a want for God and a craving for God, then you open up your Bible and God's primary means of giving that to you is so you're opening up your Bible and reading it, studying it, memorizing it. That this is not only how God begets a Christian or makes them born again, plants the word of God in them, but it's also how he breathes life into you as a Christian. So, so it's got this life-giving um, characteristic to it. Number four, <clears throat> it's, it's true, okay? The, the Bible is true. Look at verse two, chapter two. Like newborn infants long for that, and you might want to underline this word, pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Okay, that word translated pure in the Greek is the same word used in the previous verse, chapter two, verse one. It's the same word deceit, but it's got an alpha in front of it. And that alpha negates the meaning. So if you take deceit and go the opposite of that, that's what pure means. So, so it's deceit is not trustworthy, lying, doesn't have integrity. You, you've got pure is, it, it's trustworthy for you. In, in other words, um, you can plant your life on the Bible. 
It's trustworthy. It's truthful. You, you, can, you can look at the Bible, read the Bible, look at what it says, look at who Jesus is, and you can plant your life squarely there, trusting your life to it. That it's trustworthy. That, that you can trust your future to it. You can trust your eternity with it. You can trust your family with it. You can trust your finances with it. You can trust every part of your life with it. It's a trustworthy thing. That when you plant your life on the word of God, you're planting your life on a rock solid foundation. Because when you plant your life on the word of God, you are planting your life on God's words for you and to you. And they're trustworthy. So he says they're pure, they're, they're true. And number five, look at verse two, uh, or chapter two, verse two. He says this, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. So he's saying that the word of God is also nourishing. That there, there is a nourishment that, that is derived from the word of God. Okay, now with that, there's a couple of things that we need to, to, some implications in the text under this area that we need to drill into. So three implications of, of this idea of it being nourishing that you see here. One is that this is a call for you to grow up. Okay, this, this is a call, you see it here, you're to grow up into salvation, you're to grow up. This is a call for Christians to grow up. And, and you see this um, in various places in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul uses this, this imagery of you, you should be on meat, but you're still on milk. Okay, it, it's a metaphor to say you should be growing up. You shouldn't be an infant anymore. Like you shouldn't be progressing down the way here. In 1 John chapter, I think it's chapter 2 verse 12, um, he uses the imagery of, and this is not physically he's talking, he's talking about spiritually. That, that some of you are infants, some of you are young men, and some of you are adults, your fathers. So, so he's using that to, to kind of outline the progression of maturing that should be happening in the life of a Christian. That when God saves you, it's this imagery of an infant, but now you're growing up to, to be a mature person, a mature man, woman under God, a mature child of God. This is the idea that your Christian life should be seen as a process of you growing, of you progressing, of you becoming more and more mature. Maybe you could think of it this way. We have a, a five-month-old, her name is Eva, and uh, Laura does, I, I don't know how to exactly to say this from a stage, but she does the whole thing. I'm just going to call it body feeding. We good with that? All right. Okay. So she does the body feeding thing. And so, uh, and so uh, now, now if, if y'all were just to see something like that go down, I don't think anybody's going to think, oh no, she's body feeding a five month old. Somebody call the cops. She's not, you're not thinking that. It's not weird. It's, it's natural. A five-month-old drinks milk, right? And so that, that's how you grow. That's how this thing plays itself out. But if Eva is 20 years old and she's body feeding, I'm calling the cops. <laughs> Somebody's going to prison over that deal, right? That, that's not right. Okay, now, now here's the, now transfer that over to, to spiritual language here and your walk with God. Here's the problem. Is that churches are full of men and women that are 20 years into this thing and they're still on the bottle. There's been no progression. They're still infants when they shouldn't be infants. They're still young men when they should be grown men in their faith. Right? So it's this call to grow up, to become what God has created you to become, to progress in that, to move in that, to mature in that. 
Okay, so it's a call to grow up, but, but there's more than that. It's also like he defines what you're to grow up into. Like you're to grow up into salvation. You're to grow up into something specific. It's not abstract. It's not like, well, what are you supposed to grow up to be? It, it's clear. You're to grow up into salvation. Okay, so, so that would mean that you're to grow up to be like Jesus. That when you think of Jesus, that's what you're to grow up into. This is Romans 8, 28 and 29. That you're to be conformed to the image of Christ. That you're to look more and more like Jesus. So, so his characteristics, his attributes are becoming more and more characteristic of your life. Um, maybe this would be a good thing for you to do at some point is just to read one of the gospels. Pick one of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Read one of them with, with just trying to answer the question, what is Jesus like? Like, what do you see play out in the life of Jesus? And listen to one pastor's response as he answers that question. He says he's tenderness without any weakness. Isn't that interesting? Like that balance of being tender but not being weak, right? So he's tenderness without any weakness. He's strength without the, the slightest hint of harshness. That's, that's a pretty difficult chord to strike there, isn't it? Strength with, with no harshness. He's perfect humility with no lack of confidence. He's unbending, listen to this one. He's unbending in his convictions, but at the same time, completely approachable. He's absolute in his power, but without any insensitivity to those without the power. Isn't that interesting? He's got all the power, but he's totally sensitive and and caring for those who have none. He's passionate without any prejudice. He has total integrity without any rigidity. He's never unthinking, never a false word. And Peter's saying, listen, this is what you're to grow up into. More and more, your life is to be characterized by Jesus, but by his life. And I think this is where one of those misconceptions can come when you hear that sort of a tall order to kind of live in, right? One of the, the, the problems that we have in that is, is we, we divorce what God is telling us to become with what God has done in us and for us. When, when you hear the Bible command you to grow up into Jesus, to be conformed to the image of Jesus, here's what the Bible assumes has happened to you. It assumes that you have been born again, verse 23. That, that God has totally remade your inside. That he's planted a new DNA in you. That you were sin-centered at your core, but now God has regenerated you, made you born again, and now you are God-centered at your core. A radical kind of reorienting of, of your insides. It assumes that that has happened. This new DNA is given to you. So this command should be read like this. It's, it's not God saying, it's not Peter, God through Peter saying that, that you're to become what you're not. It, it's God saying through Peter, you are to become what I've already made you. This is an unfolding and an unpacking of that DNA that I placed in you. Do you see the picture there? This is a picture of what, maybe you could think of it this way, that this should be the progression of a, of a Christian. It should be that. It's made possible because God has regenerated you, made you born again, planted this DNA in you. And because God has planted that new DNA in you, this is also inevitable. It has to come out of you. So it's God calling you to be what he has made you. Okay, that, that's the picture. It, it's him calling out of you what he's put inside of you. Okay, so it's this call to grow up in your salvation. And then here's the last implication. The word provides the nutrients needed for growth. That if you're going to grow up in that salvation, if you're going to mature along the way, that the word of God is how that is done. Okay, now I... There is a lot more to say that I'm about to say about Christian growth and change and maturing. There's, there's a ton to say about that. But there is not less to say than this, that it always happens through the word of God, not around it. It always happens through it. It always happens in it. That the word of God provides this, this, these nutrients needed. Okay, so he uses this imagery of a milk and an infant's. 
Okay, now here's what that imagery is not meant to do. This isn't a, the imagery is not used like um, milk versus meat or infant versus adult. It's not used to say, it's not used to say in that context, grow up. The imagery is used in this context to say, look at what milk does for a baby. So what does milk do for a baby? Milk immunizes a baby to sicknesses. Um, it, It provides the nutrients needed for an infant to grow up. It does all that. And in the same way, that is what the word of God does for a Christian. That the word of God functions like milk to an infant. The the word of God is is what immunizes you to sin. This is why you've probably heard this said that either the Bible will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Bible. That when you get in the Bible, you soak your heart in gospel promises. It has a way of keeping you from sin. It immunizes you from that. And at the same time, it provides the nutrients needed to grow. That apart from nourishing and, and eating the Bible, digesting and chewing on the Bible, you'll never grow up into what God has. You'll never mature. You're always going to be stuck as a 20-year-old on the bottle. This is the nutrients needed for the most immature saint in the room and the most mature saint in the room. This is the nutrients you need. It's provided here for you to grow up, for you to become more of what God has you to become. This is why in Matthew 4, um, Jesus says, you, you, can't, you can't survive on bread alone. Impossible. You can't do it. But by every word that comes from God. Okay, it's, it's the nutrients you need to grow up. Number six, six characteristics. Number six, it's how we taste more of the goodness of God. Look at verse, uh, chapter two, verse two and three. Peter says this, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Verse three, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So what does it mean to say that, that the Lord is good? What does it mean to say, have you tasted that? Have you, have you experienced that? Like, what is the goodness of God? Here, here's what I wrote for it. It means to know that your sins are forgiven because of the work of Jesus, Ephesians 1, 7. It's the peace that comes with knowing there is no condemnation because of the work of Christ for you, Romans 8, 1. It's the assurance of experiencing the power of God that works through a believer to resist sin, 1 Peter 5, 9. It's seeing and savoring the beauty of Christ, Matthew 13, 44. It's the inexpressible joy that comes with knowing and loving God, 1 Peter 1, 8, and 9. It's the result of knowing that you love God and that you're loved by God, Ephesians 3, 19. And that he's working everything for your good, Romans 8, 28. That he will never leave you or forsake you, Hebrews 13, 5. That he has adopted you into his family, Ephesians 1, 5. That you're no longer a slave, but you are a son or a daughter of God, Romans 8, 15. That God is Abba, Father to you if you're a Christian, Galatians 4, 6. And that you're an heir to everything that's his, Romans 8, 17. It's the realization that God's sufficient even in our greatest sufferings, that due to the work of Jesus, our eternity is secure and that we are secure for our eternity, 1 Peter 1, 4, and 5. Okay, this is the goodness of God. It's seeing all that. It's seeing all these gospel promises, all that has been secured for you because of the work of Jesus for you. That's the goodness of God. And here's, here's the thing. That is most clearly seen in the scriptures. That, that's what the Bible is about. The Bible is about Genesis to Revelation that God saves. That, that the Bible is about the fact that God has sent a savior to reconcile you, to redeem you, to rescue you. This is, this is the scarlet thread that unites the entire 66 books of the Bible together. This is why in 1 Peter 1.25, Peter says this word, this, this word that was preached to you, this word is the good news. Like when you start reading the Bible, you are seeing the good news of the goodness of God displayed for you. 
So it's how we taste more and more of the goodness of God. And number seven, seventh characteristics. Chapter two, verse two says this, like newborn infants, and here's the command. Here's the command. Long for, crave, desire the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Number seven, the word of God is to be craved, it's to be longed for, it's to be desired. That there is to be something in you that desires and wants and runs after God in his word, through his word. Okay, now I, I want to read some, some uh, passages out of Psalms 119. And, and here's what I want you to do with these passages. I just want you to lay them over your heart and ask yourself the question, do I feel about God's word like, these, like this psalmist, like he felt about God's word? Like, do I have this impulse in me that, that runs after and wants God's words like, like this guy does? Okay, so just ask yourself that question. Do I crave? Do I long for it? Do I desire it like this? Okay, this is Psalms 119. We'll start in verse 16. He says this, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. Like I love these things. They're my delight. They are my counselors. Verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Verse 35, lead me in the path of your commandments for I, love, for I delight in it. I mean, I love these things. These things rejoice my heart. Verse 54, your statutes have been my songs. In other words, they are causing rejoicing. They have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. Listen to this love for the word. Verse 48, I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Look at how they're consumed with it. Verse 20, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Verse 72, the law of, the Lord, or the law of your mouth is better to me than, listen to this, than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Verse 127, therefore I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. 162, I rejoice at, at your word like one who finds great spoil. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, that, look, if you were to pile all the gold up in the world and set it right there and you put the Bible beside it, I am choosing the Bible. That if you were to go spoil a great city and put all of it right there, I'm going with the Bible. That the Bible has that sort of worth to me. It's, it's got that sort of a sweetness to me. I've, I've got that much delight in it and love for it. Now, now, how does that register with you? When you lay your desire for the word over that. This whole infant milk imagery here, I think one of the things that this imagery um, portrays to us is um, how an infant craves milk. If, if you've got a newborn, you know they'll wake up at 3 a.m. Sleep, sleep will never keep them from crying for milk, will it? The, the, when, when, when something gets in their way uh, between them and milk, it dies or, or they cry. That, that's how it works. There is this impulse ingrained into the heart of an infant that says, I want, I need, I'm going to get milk regardless of what happens. And I, I think there's that same imagery that carries over. He's saying that in the heart of a Christian, in a child of God, there is this ingrained impulse that should be coming out of their life that cries for the word of God, that wants it like a newborn wants milk. So, so how, is that impulse, is it alive in you? Is it kicking in you? I mean, is it, is it affecting some things in you? Does it come out of you, this impulse for the word of God? 
And I think it's interesting that, that he uses this idea of, of craving and then he says, I command it. That this is not optional, I'm commanding it. Now it's one thing if, if Peter were to command you to do something, but it's another thing when he's actually commanding you to feel something because you can't make yourself feel a craving. You can't make yourself feel a love for a person. You can't make yourself do that. And so he's commanding this, this desire and he's commanding a feeling and he's commanding affection for the word of God. So let me just, I, I think this is how this plays out practically for you, especially if you're in here today and you would say, man, my desire does not match that. I don't have that sort of delight in the word. I don't have that sort of a love for it right now. I think this is how it practically plays out. This is a Christian we, we need to have faith that God will produce that sort of desire as we develop the habit of, of soaking in his scriptures, of, of being disciplined to open up the word and to read it. So, so God, it's, it's, we, we're tr- we repent that we don't have the desire and God, we're gonna trust you to develop that desire as we unpack this discipline of reading and studying and working in and soaking ourselves in your, your word. So I, I want to unpack just some applications as we finish here on what it might look like for us as, as a church family to be a people who are craving the word, what sort of habits need to be under that craving to support it and, and to make sure it's consistent for the long haul. So, so I want to unpack some, some serious applications as we land the plane here. Okay, now I want to preface this application with, with, this, with these words. Scripture is never intended to be an end. It's always intended to be a means. So, so you're never to read the Bible for the sake of reading the Bible. You're never to crave the Bible for the sake of craving the Bible. You're to read the scriptures for the sake of seeing the Savior that is revealed there. You're to crave the scriptures so, so that you can crave the God who is so brightly displayed throughout its pages. Okay, so th- this is John chapter five where Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and he says, listen, you, you search and inquire the, the Bible so carefully. I mean, you are people of the book. And, and in them, in that book, you, you think you're gonna find life. But the problem is you're not gonna find life in the book. You're gonna find life in me that is presented in the book. And so if, if all you want is the knowledge that comes from kind of reading some, some, some pages of the scriptures and studying it, then, then you're missing it. The point is, in the Bible is where you see Jesus. In the Bible is where you see a savior. In the Bible is where you see the worth of God. In the Bible is where um, all these intoxicating effects of the world, all of that is seen through and you're sobered up. In the Bible is where we see what really matters. In the Bible is where, we, where we're reminded of what will be important when we stand before God someday. So in the Bible is where we see all of that. So it's not a craving for the sake of craving the Bible. It's a craving for the sake of seeing the Savior in it. Okay, so that, that's the preface. So, so five things. I think it's just application of the habits that need to start developing in us as a church family for this craving to be sustained. Number one, it's hearing the word. That we need to position ourselves and our families in such a way that we are hearing the Bible taught. So, so here's how this plays out. That you need to make sure you're under good, gospel-soaked, Jesus-pointing preaching. That you need to be under that sort of preaching. Consistently under that sort of preaching. 
that that needs to be a priority in your life and in the life of your family. If you're a dad in the room, let me tell you what your family needs more than their next meal, than the, the next game, than the next, you just fill in the blank. What they need more than all of that is to be under good preaching consistently. Not one time, it's not like one sermon. You're not gonna remember this sermon. You're gonna remember the cumulative effect of a lot of sermons over the course of a lot of years. So it, it's a cumulative effect. You need to have your family positioned under good preaching where they can hear the word. This is why, Um, Romans chapter 10 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word. You need to be under consistently good gospel saturated preaching. Okay, that's number one. Hear the word. And by the way, listening to the word is just as hard of work as preaching it. Like for you to listen this long this morning, it is hard work for you to stay in tune with that. It's hard work for you not to, 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 to kind of drift off into what's coming down the road. The Cowboys are about, are playing. It, it's hard work to do all that, isn't it? So, so, so it takes you working for you to listen well. It takes you working for you to stay in tune. It, stay, it takes you working to be an active listener. Okay, so you, that's your commitment. That, that's your hard work. And listen, it actually takes... Um, more than just coming on a Sunday morning. It takes you preparing to come on a Sunday morning. There might be some thoughts before you even get here on a Sunday morning to prepare your family to be good listeners when they come. Okay, so first thing is hearing the word. Second thing is you need to be people who read the word. That we need to be a faith family who is reading the Bible. When we read the Bible, we're talking about taking in the breadth of scripture. Okay, so the the width of it. Okay, that's reading the word. And let me just say this. There is no substitute in a Christian's life for reading the Bible. There's no substitute. There's not something you can just plug in over here that takes the place of you reading the Bible. Okay, that that is a discipline that if you have not developed, a habit that you have not developed, it needs to be developing for you to open up the, the pages of Scripture and for you to read it. By reading the breadth of Scripture, by reading from Genesis to Revelation, consistently reading through the pages of Scripture, it's how when you're reading um, 1 Peter chapter 1 and you come across the word born again, it's how you link that to Ezekiel 37 and the Valley of Dry Bones. See, without you reading the breadth of Scripture, you miss all of that. So, so reading the breadth of scripture is massively important. Maybe it's a good just way to encourage you in that is to get a good Bible reading plan. You can find one on our website under resources. Get a good Bible reading plan that will help you make sure you're, you're taking in the breadth and the width of scripture on a yearly basis. And that needs to be happening in our families. So, so dads, this, this goes on you to make sure that, that Bible reading is a part of our family. That, that talking about the Bible, reading the Bible is normal, not abnormal in your family. This is something that we do as a family. This is something that your kids would, would consider normal to open up a chapter and read it together. Okay, so, so Bible reading. Sec, our third thing is studying the Bible. Okay, so if reading takes in the breadth and the width of Scripture, studying the Bible takes in the depth of Scripture. It's trying to ask questions that help drill down into into phrases, into words, into verses. Okay, this is studying the Bible. It's not concerned with with breadth. It's concerned with depth. That we need to be a people who are studying the Bible, who who are digging into the Bible, who are trying to discern what is the Bible saying in that context and how does that apply to me? Okay, so it's studying the Bible. Listen to one pastor's words as he he encourages um, people to, to study the Bible. He says this, And this will be on the screen for you. He says, several strong 
Several strong forces oppose our relentless and systematic interrogation of biblical text. One is that it consumes a great deal of time and energy on one small portion of scripture. We have been schooled quite erroneously that there is a direct correlation between reading a lot and gaining insight. But in fact, there is no positive correlation at all between the quantity of pages read and the quality of insight gained. Just the reverse for most of us. Insight diminishes as we try to read more and more. Insight or understanding is the product of, listen to this, of intensive headache-producing meditation on two or three propositions or verses or phrases and how they fit together. And then he gives this as an example. He says, take two hours to ask 10 questions on Galatians 2.20 and you will likely gain 100 times the insight you would have attained by quickly reading 30 pages of the New Testament or any other book. He says this, slow down, query, ponder, chew. Are you a person that studies the Bible? Takes phrases, takes words, takes chapters and studies them. I think a good application of this would be to say that we need to be that. that we need to be growing in that. And you don't have to make this more difficult than it is on yourself. Um, we, this is the reason we preach through books of the Bible is because of this. We, we preach through like this because we want to help you develop good habits to study. And so it would be really easy for you to take 1 Peter chapter 2. That's where we're going to be next week and for the next couple of weeks. And for you to start studying along with that. Get some good resources. Start digging in with us and, and study with us as we go along. Don't just come like a blank slate when you get here on Sunday morning. Come ready, having studied the same text with us. So, so you need to be people who are studying the Bible. Number four, memorizing it. So it's not just reading, not just studying, it's memorizing it. That, that we are people who are committing the Bible to memory. Large sections, small verses. Maybe it's covering a variety of, of ethical topics that would be good for us to have in our heart. Maybe it's taking a chapter of the Bible. Maybe it's taking a book of the Bible. And it's hiding that in our heart. This is, this is um, Psalms 119.11. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's, it's hiding that, that Bible in your heart so that now you have a vocabulary that the Holy Spirit can use a convincing and compelling vocabulary that the Holy Spirit can use when you need it most. That's what scripture memory does for us. It puts into us the vocabulary that the Holy Spirit starts speaking to us in. So it's memorizing the Bible. And by the way, we've got monthly scripture memory stuff that, that you ought to do as a family. Like jump in that as just a normal rhythm and routine. You can pick one up on the back table on your way out today. So memorizing it. And number five, meditating. We'll finish here. Is meditating on it. This is thinking. This, is, this kind of ties everything together. It's, it's soaking yourself in what you've read, what you've listened to, what you've studied, what you've memorized. It's thinking about that. You might think of it in terms of marinating. So it's marinating your heart and what you have just um, been confronted with through, through memory, through study, through reading, through preaching. It's, it's marinating your heart in that. Listen, this morning, it wouldn't matter if John the Baptist is preaching to you this morning if you don't take time to think about it. If you don't take time to think about it, it's going to appear like a vapor in front of you and then it disappears. But when you think about it, you, you, you're able to grab the vapor and tuck it into your heart. That, that's meditation. That's Christian meditation. It's thinking about soaking yourself in, saturating yourself in, marinating in the, the truth of God's word. That's, that's meditation. Listen to Charles Spurgeon as he tries to encourage people on meditation. He says, Oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of God's word. And get that word into ourselves. He says this, and I love this imagery. 
As I have seen the silkworm eat into the leaf and consume it, so ought we to do with the word of the Lord. Not crawl over its surface, but eat right into it until we have taken it into our inmost parts. It is idle merely to let the eye glance over the words, but it is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in a scriptural language. And, and your very style is fashioned upon scriptural models. And what is better still, your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord. I would quote John Bunyan as an instance. He's an old Puritan pastor, wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan as an instance of what I mean. Read anything of his and you will see that it is almost like reading the Bible itself. He had read it till his very soul was saturated with the scriptures. And though his writings are charmfully full of poetry, yet he cannot give us his pilgrim's progress, that sweetest of all prose poems, without continually making us feel and say why this man is a living Bible. And I love this, this last phrase. He says, prick him or nick him anywhere, and his blood is biblin. I love that, isn't it? That the very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text for his very soul is full of the word of God. I commend his example to you, beloved. And I hope we'll live in that sort of an example. I hope there'll be some of us that that when people kind of just knock into us or squeeze our life, that Bible just kind of naturally flows out of you. That that you would would bleed biblin like that. Okay, so, so here's where we'll finish. J.I. Packer, in his book, A Quest for Godliness, he recounts in the 1620s um, a Puritan preacher, his name was John Rogers, who who was preaching at his church family, um, about 500 hearers, um, on their neglect of the Bible. So on their general neglect of the word of God. And a guy named Thomas Goodwin was in the audience. He later became a, a, a Puritan pastor, Goodwin in his own right. And he recounts what happened on that day. So, so this is Thomas Goodwin's recount of John Rogers preaching. He says, Mr. Rogers was on the subject of the scriptures and he impersonates God to the people. So he impersonates God telling them, well, I have trusted you so long with my Bible and you have slighted it. It lies such in, in such and such homes all covered with dust and, cobsweb, and cobwebs. You care not to listen to it. Do you use my Bible so? God is he's speaking for God to them. Well, you shall have my Bible no longer. And he, the, the preacher, he takes up the Bible from his cushion and seemed as if he were going away with it and carrying it from them. But then he immediately turns again and personates the people to God. So now he's, he's, he's responding from the people to God. And he falls down on his knees, cries and pleads most earnestly, Lord, whatever you do to us, take not your Bible from us. Burn our houses, destroy our goods, only spare us your Bible, only take not away your Bible. And then he personates God again to the people. Say you so, well, I will try you a little longer. And here is my Bible for you. I will see how you will use it, whether you will love it more, observe it more, practice it more and live more according to it. Thomas Goodwin, he goes on to um, recount what happened in that moment at that church. He said, the spirit of God broke through with such power that the entire room began repenting of their neglect for the Bible. And he said, the entire room melted in tears before God. That he, he, he eventually made it outside and got to his horse. And he said, it took him 15 minutes to muster the strength to mount his horse. And I pray that God might start to stir in us repentance for the neglect of his word. 
that he might start to stir in us a love and a craving and a desire for and a pursuit of him through it. And I pray that he might do that today. Amen? Let's pray. Do you have a craving for the word of God, this deep desire, this impulse that is ingrained in you like a newborn infant with milk that would say, I want that. It is more precious to me than great spoil and gold and silver. If not, there might be a few reasons for that this morning. It could be that, that maybe you're not a child of God. Maybe God hasn't saved you and given you that, that impulse that the people of God have toward the word of God. And, and so maybe for some of us in the room, the appropriate step this morning would be to say, God, I, I want that impulse. God, I want that impulse. And God, I know that my first step in that would be stepping across a line of faith with you, where you implant this new DNA, where you, where you do this work in me. And so, so maybe, maybe your first step is to say, God, I trust you with my life. Got to surrender it to you. And I'm treasuring you above all things. And the Bible says when that happens, that, that, that God saves you. Those impulses are, are there and they start to come out of you. So that's never happened. And this is a great invitation for you today to say, God, God, will you save me? God stands ready and willing for that. For others in the room, maybe that impulse has been planted in you by God, like you're a Christian, but, but some things are blocking that. And, and maybe that is just blatant sin this morning that is blo- blocking that. Maybe it's the sin of laziness or procrastination. Maybe it's just you've got these calluses that are built on your heart that are blocking these impulses that God has planted in you. Maybe it's this hardness that is developed in you that keeps the word of God from, from, from being craved. And so you're, you're, I think an appropriate response for you today, if that's you, is for you to repent of that sin. For you to turn from, from unbelief and from running after that to in faith turn toward God so maybe that needs to happen for some of us in the room one of the things that I think is, is probably really prevalent in the room is that we are just intoxicated by a thousand worldly things that we're so caught up in the making money and raising a family and this hobby and this kid's sport and a thousand different things that are just inebriating they have, a, they have a way of, of clouding how you think. What, what's most, they just have a way of, of making it difficult to see. And so, so maybe the Spirit of God needs to come in this morning and, and wipe that away and sober some of us to the rhythm and routine of our lives that have no Bible that neglect God's words to us. And, and so dad, I want to I leave this this morning with, with setting this on your shoulders. That at the end of the day, this is the dad's responsibility to make sure that the word of God is read in the home, the word of God is studied in the home, that the word of God is memorized in the home, 
the word of God is being meditated on in the home, that, that if you're a mom or dad in here, there is no better things that your kids can see you doing than reading the Bible. And so God, I pray that, that you might um, meet us where we are across this room today. God, that your spirit would, would apply this truth specifically to us today. And God, I pray that, that one of the marks of this, this people that you've gathered here what would be a mark of craving and loving and wanting and desiring and pursuing you through your scriptures. And so God, will you, will you do that in us? God, will you do that among us? It's in your good name that we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.